first let, let me open with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the privilege we have to know you. We thank you so much for the gifts you've given to us and to this church. And Father, uh, I just thank you for every person here that they're coming to learn more about you, to learn more about this church, and to minister in your name. So make Lee's words and my words your words. Open our hearts and our minds to receive this. And Father, may we uh, just be productive for you and that the outcome of this class will just be more folks, more saints doing your work. We love you and we praise you and pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Um, everybody got page 79. Ecclesiastical polity is operational and governance of the church, of the structure of the church. That may sound mundane, and it somewhat is, but if any of y'all have been on a session or a diaconate before, there are always issues in a church. The church is made up of sinners, and there's always issues that we have to deal with, and the Presbyterians are known for you know, doing things well and in good order. We are very disciplined, very structured in the way we do things. And so I, if you go down to B, why is polity important? And this is the reason that it is important. It guards the gospel. Uh, it matures the Christian disciple, it strengthens the whole church, and it equips and unifies the congregation. There has to be a structure. As human beings, we are structure people, and at, at least most people are. Um, we want to have some order in how we do things, to be efficient and to be smart about it. Um, I, I am going to take you back on a little history tour, and this... Uh, that's not the right one. I'm going to take you back to page um, 87. You will flip over to page 87. You should have a chart that looks like this. Everybody got it? First of all, how many of y'all came from Presbyterian background? Wow. Never have I ever seen everybody raise their hand. Well, this is going to be a lot easier. So are you all uh, acquainted with the structure of the Presbyterian Church? I, I did want to give you a little bit of overview about the denominations. And if you look on page 87, and this is a, this is a very abbreviated version, but it takes us back to the church in 30 A.D., and then you had the great schism that occurred in 1054 when the Orthodox and the Roman Catholic churches split apart. And you can begin to see the lines. This is part of a lesson I did on Presbyterians. Who are we and what do we believe? It was a Sunday school series I did. And you can go through here. And usually in a group like this, we have Baptists and Methodists. We've had some Catholics and, and things like that. And so this has been very important for them to understand where we all came from. We all have our ties back to the original church, but in some ways we came through different denominations and subdenominations and everything else. So again, I don't want to overemphasize this other than this may be helpful. And then if you look at the bottom part, above that dark black horizontal line is the Christian, and then below it is the non-Christian. The Unitarian, the Jehovah's Witness, Christian Science, Mormon, Judaism, Hinduism, and so forth. But this will kind of give you a sense as to where we are in Christendom. 
And if you look in that Protestant Reformation box at the top, and you'll notice there's four boxes below it. The Anabaptists are not the Baptists that we have today. Uh, the Reformed is who we are. We are the Reformed Church. Out of uh, the Reformed came Presbyterian. Lutheran was the, the, uh, the denomination of Luther. And the Anglican Church, it was interesting, um, the Anglicans came along a little bit later simply because it was um, Henry VIII's church. And he issued the um, Act of Supremacy in 1534, which basically severed ties with the Roman Catholic Church. So they came along a little bit later. But enough about that. I'll be happy to answer any questions at the end if you like. But it, if you want, studying church history is a fascinating thing because they are, we all have our origins and we all have our sets of beliefs. Um, I do want to go to the three primary um, forms of Christian denominations today. And the first one is Episcopal. And like I said, usually we have some Episcopal Episcopalians in here. And the reason I dwell on this is we have, of the congregation here, I'm going to bet you at least 50% did not come from Presbyterian origins. have a huge number of Baptists, a number of Methodists, and a number of Episcopalians. And a lot of people don't understand our form of church government. And so what this is, is to, and I'll, I'll go through this quickly since y'all are from a Presbyterian background, but when you think of the hierarchical model, I want you to think of a monarchy, okay? A monarchy, like the Queen of England. Um, and this org chart basically says that. And so in a hierarchical organization, um, this type of church is called Episcopal, or Episcopos is the Greek for uh, bishop or overseer. And you will see Episcopos in the Bible, in the New Testament. Um, the, the, this form functions with a single leader generally called a bishop or an archbishop or in the case of the Roman church, the Pope. He is the chief bishop. The Pope is the chief, chief bishop. And so um, you have this very much top down and so you think of a monarchy and there's different levels below that. Examples we have today, some may surprise you. Roman Catholic I think is pretty obvious. Episcopals are the Anglican is pretty obvious. Greek Orthodox is that way. They have what's called a patriarch, which is the head of their church. Methodists are Episcopal in their uh, structure, as are Lutherans. Lutherans are Episcopal in their structure. Um, for the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope is head and king of the church. And I'd, I'd love to take you back, and I, but I won't. The Catholic Church believes that Peter was the first Pope. And if you go to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, you can go down underneath it and you will see what is purported to be St. Peter's bones. Uh, so he is supposed to be the first pope and then they have a lineage of popes ever since Peter. Now, I, I don't know if that's true or not, and this is not to bash anybody, but that's what the Catholic Church teaches. Um, so below the, the, the archbishop or the pope, you have a series of cardinals and other bishops and down and so forth, down to the rector, which is the priest in charge of a particular church, and then a parish priest. And that's the way they are structured. It's called hierarchical. 
uh, one priest answers to another, and so forth. Um, the Anglican Church is a variation of that. It's interesting because who is the who is the head and king of the church or queen of the church? The monarch. Henry VIII was was labeled by the Pope in the 1500s as the defender of the faith. So if you watch a coronation of the king or queen of England, the king or queen of England is designated as the defender of faith in England. And uh, they are the actual head of the church. And the highest cleric in the Anglican church, or the Episcopal church, is who? It's an archbishop named after a town, Archbishop of Canterbury. So if you ever go to Canterbury, you can see the cathedral there, and that's where the, the uh, religious head or the clerical head of the Anglican church is. So you see, it's a very, very different structure than what we have in the Presbyterian church. And as a result, when we get Anglicans in here or Catholics, they're somewhat confused by how we're structured. This next one is the congregational. And I married a, a Baptist, and so Baptists are congregational in their form. Well, let's look at what that means. If you, basically, you have a congregation, and then that congregation votes on everything. There, and so if you look at it like this, the final authority rests with the congregation, not with the pastor. Even though the church may have deacons, generally the ultimate authority resides with the congregation. Uh, and it can take several forms. In, with no designated leaders, congregations make virtually every decision. And everything goes to a vote of the congregation. In other churches, there are some primary office holders, pastors, deacons, or elders, that make certain decisions, but ultimately it all goes back to the congregation for a decision. Um, most churches with congregational rule are also independent. And by that I mean they don't, or they're not part of a denomination. And Baptist churches, you know, but, but you say, well, you know, we have the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, that's not a denomination. That's a convention or an association. And it is voluntary on the part of the churches. And that convention has no authority over the individual churches. It's very different than the Presbyterian and the, the uh, Episcopal models where the authority comes down from the top. Um, the Baptists are very independent. And some examples of those are um, the um, Congregational Church, for instance, up in New England, which is very reformed in its theology, but it's congregational in its vote. Disciples of Christ are congregated. A lot of these churches, a lot of the Pentecostal churches are congregational, where everybody, Quakers and folks like that, they are all congregational. Um, the third type is Presbyterian. And that's, of course, us. Um, and, and the, let me back up a second. When, I, when you think of the congregational model, I want you to think of a true democracy. Do you know what happens in a true democracy? One person, one vote. This country is not founded as a true democracy. It's a democratic republic. 
And guess who's the democratic republic among the churches? Presbyterian. Because in a democratic republic, the majority of the people vote for representatives to represent them. And that's exactly what happens in the Presbyterian church. And so in a sense, the government of the United States is modeled after the Presbyterian church, if you think about it, because, and it works and it makes sense. So think about us as a democratic republic and it's the elected representatives that do the, the uh, decision making. Um, presbyteros also comes out of the Bible. It means elder. You see a lot of that in Acts. And in this form of church government, the authority rests with the elders. In this case, the session. We'll come back to that in a minute. But it rests with the session. Now, there are certain things that have to go to the congregation for vote, which we'll talk about later. But in general, a Presbyterian church, the authority, the, the authoritative body is the session. Um, there are also some other courts, which we're going to get into a little bit later, within the Presbyterian Church. Um, something that's interesting is that once the elders are ratified as elders, the congregation does not have the power to remove them or overturn their decisions. The congregation does not. The elders can be taken before a board and can be ousted, by the board, but the congregation, and same thing with the pastor, congregation doesn't hire the pastor or fire the pastor. It's the session that does. Um, and, but in our case, we always go back to the church in terms of with the recommendation. So which one out of all these three is correct? <laughs> it's not a trick question. <laughs> if you go back through the scripture, um, the Episcopalians will say that they, they're right. The kind, you know, everybody's got their basis, but I truly believe the most scriptural form is the Presbyterian. I really do. Because you had the 12 apostles, and then you, you went down from there. Now, where does Jesus fit into all this? Well, Jesus is the head and king of the church. He is the ultra-presbyter. He is the ultra, the senior elder, so to speak. We all look to him. But in terms of administration of his church on earth, we believe that it's through, these, through the Presbyterian model. Um, Jesus is the chief shepherd. We are the under, as elders, Lee and I and others that may be elders here, we're under shepherds. We get our authority from him. We're voted in by the congregation, but our authority comes from Christ. Um, and that's why this is so important. Because as we go through this, if, you, if the congregation were to vote in elders that are not competent, it's very dangerous. It can be very, very bad in the life of a church. There has to be competency and spirituality among these elders. It's not a popularity contest. Because that body of elders, the men and women that are elders, they are going to be in charge of protecting the flock. We'll get to that when we get to the role of elders and for making the decisions for the, for the flock. Um, the under-shepherds, as elders, carry out the governance of the church under the episcopy of the Lord. And that, in a nutshell, 
are the three different forms of polity. And I'm sure it's not the most exciting thing that you've heard, but hopefully there'll be something that you can, un as to why, maybe there's a reason why we do things the way we do here as Presbyterians. Um, any questions on that before I go on? Pretty clear, clear as mud. Okay, let's go over, if you will, to the, it's on page 80, the councils of the ECO or the courts of the denomination. I want you to think in terms of three tiers. Now the PCUSA and the PCA and some of the others are a little different than we are in the ECO. There are three in the ECO. The lower court is the session. The, the court above the session is the presbytery, and the court above the presbytery is the synod, okay? And I want you to think city, state, country, you know, in terms of a comparison on a governmental basis. The session is the local church. The presbytery is a collection of, of churches. The synod is all the churches, okay? So it's the greater, that's the way it works. That's, that's the, the system that we have. Um, unfortunately, you don't have the handouts with the polity because I had a bunch of references I was going to take you to on that. But if you go to the Synod, uh, I'm on page three, uh, or let's say page, where are we? Page 80, the Synod. And I'm not going to read you all this stuff because it is boring, but it is essential. And I put the, if you note then the little parentheses, the th like the purpose 3.0201, that's a reference to the document that Lee is copying for you now, okay? But this, this is just a, a very brief summary of this. The Senate is the, is the widest council. That's where all the representatives of all the churches go um, to give support and guidance to the presbyteries and the congregations. It's the synod that proclaims and assesses the missional vision and the theology of the ECO. And there is also a national gathering that is primarily devoted to training and education. With this many Presbyterians uh, in, in here, have y'all have, have y'all been deacons or elders? Elder, elder, so three elders. Mike, you were deacon. Have you gone through anything like this in your other churches? Okay, so you this is probably somewhat familiar to you. And and I don't know, you know, the ECO is a little bit distinctive in terms of some of the the, the levels of of uh, administration, but it's all basically the same thing. On that model there, the Presbyterian model, because that's what the ECO is, right? It's a, yes. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so where's the synod on that model? It would be the General Assembly. General Assembly yeah, this is a generic. And so the Presbytery, well, even in the PCUSA, for instance, you have the congregation reporting to the session, reporting to the Presbytery, reporting to the synod, reporting to the General Assembly. And that's the way it is in the PCA. The ECO, because it's a relatively young denomination, does it didn't have enough churches to warrant that fourth level. At some point we may, and we may go on to a fourth level, which would be General Assembly. Um, 
so um, the duties, you can see some of them here. Uh, the linkage of presbyteries, that's for sharing, mainly sharing and mutual support. Um, to maintain the essentials, do you all have the essentials, tenets of the, I think, is that what? This is confessional standards. Did you all have? Okay. Okay, you can do. Okay, good. Well, that's, that has to do with maintaining order. And we're going to come back to them when we get to, ch- to church discipline. Um, the meeting, the ECO Synod uh, currently meets annually. And I have not been. We send elders from the church to go and pastors. And they said it has just been a delight to go. Typically, the national gathering, which is more for education and training, is every other year, but the synod is every year. And we've had a good, um, really a good group go, and they just sung the praises of how well it's going. Um, Voting members of the synod are those individuals commissioned by and from the presbyteries uh, who in turn are representing individual churches. Now, this is a very, very important thing. If you look at my note here in highlights, uh, yeah, I came across as highlights in your book, Presbytery shall commission an equal number of ministers and elders. You know, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? Ministers are called teaching elders. Uh, Lay elders are called ruling elders. But in all Presbyterian denominations, teaching elders have the same authority as ruling elders. We are positionally different, trained different, but in the ECO, in the PCA, in a number of the other conservative Presbyterian denominations, there is parity between the teaching elder, the professional, the Richards and the Sheltons, and the Lees and Dons, okay? And the reason is, especially with some of the turmoil we've been through and, and a lot of churches are going through, the, it got out of whack. There were far more professors and pastors than there were ruling elders. And what, what has happened is in, very, in some cases, in some denominations, the church members are more conservative theologically than the pastors were. And I, and I don't want to put a finger, I'm not trying to disparage anybody, but it's a fact. We went through it at this church. And so the PCA does it this way, the ECO does it this way, that there is parity between the teaching and the ruling elders. That is an important safeguard. That I don't know if it comes out in any of this material, but it's an important safeguard because as you meet the elders here, you're going to find the elders are very well trained and they know what's going on. And we will be held accountable for, for our shepherding of our flock. Anybody that's an elder, those of y'all that have been elders before, you will be called to account of how you shepherd your flock. And so there is, there's a lot of responsibility that goes with this. Um, it's very, very important. It's a safeguard on, on our theology. Uh, the presbytery is the next level down, and that's on... Uh, page 11, which you don't have. Uh, but the presbytery is limited to, there we go, just in time. Um, can you go ahead and hand those out, Ray? Um, 
the, um, the presbytery is the next level down from the, the synod. And typically, there's a, max, there's a cap of 20 congregations in a presbytery, okay? Um, and they tend to be geographic. We have a, a presbytery in South Carolina. We, have seven, we currently have 17 churches in it. The ECA has been grow, growing quickly. When we hit 20, there will, they will have to divide the presbytery, which gives room for other churches to come in. But that's more at the local level. It's for the congregations. And the pastors can get together with nearby congregational and pastors much more readily by keep, keeping them geographically located. Uh, the duties to promote and the, the health of the covenant community, to charter and receive new congregations. And we've done a lot of that in the ECO recently. Is That's a very important thing. Those come into the presbytery. If you look at the next bullet, I'm on number three, to dismiss congregations to other presbyteries or denominations. There are presbyteries, I mean, there are churches that are leaving the PCA or the EPC or the PCUSA and coming to us and vice versa. So it is the presbytery's job to receive and to dismiss the congregations to other presbyteries. Um, it is the presbytery that receives can receive, dismiss, examine, install, and provide for the pastoral care for and discipline of pastors. One thing that is unique is that in the Presbyterian model, the associate pastors and the senior pastors are not members of the church. You all know that from your being an elder. They're members of the Presbytery, and that is a safeguard for them so that a bunch of people in the congregation don't get mad at them and fire them. They can't. You know, we, they are members of the presbytery. And if there are issues, the, the local church, the elders have to go to the presbytery and the presbytery will hear grievances and things like that. It's a tremendous safeguard for the church and for the pastors. It's, it's, it's a huge benefit to them. Um, assistant, so uh, senior pastors, presbytery, associate pastors, presbytery, associate I mean, uh, assistant pastors, congregation. It, it, we don't have any, currently have any assistant pastors, but they would be members of the congregation, okay? Uh, and then we also, in the presbytery also enrolls, dismiss, and can, candidates for ordination. Uh, I can tell you, because I was part of the group that, on the um, search committee that called Richard to this church. It, it took us three years. And when we got him here, Guess where we went? We went to Presbytery. And it was interesting because he was ordained in Scotland, and in, in Scotland they didn't require the languages. You see, a Presbyterian pastor to be ordained has to have Greek and Hebrew. And I think, don't, I think it only had Hebrew, or maybe it had Greek and not Hebrew. And so we had to take him to get him examined to be accepted because he was coming from outside the U.S., obviously, but it was the presbytery that did the examination. And, we, and I was one of two or three elders that went with him to this, uh, and he was ordained. Uh, Siri, I mean, I'd love to tell you the stories about all the miracles that happened with bringing him here. It was incredible. Oh, did he? Oh, yeah, where he, where he was literally, he was dead for... 
I forget how many minutes, but it was right outside a dentist office and they brought him back. I mean, well, I'm just talking about his call here, the miracles that we saw being on the senior pastor's uh, uh, nominating committee. It was, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. Um, so anyway, you're getting a sense of what the presbytery does. Um, the session, let's go down to see the session. Um, and we're, we're, let's see, y'all have your handouts? Let's see, is that one mine? Okay, go to, wait, eat, let's not do that. It's going to take too long. Um, what section are we in again? I got lost. I turned away from it. And I, we're in tab three. Tab three. Under polity. Yep. And I am currently on page uh, 81. Okay, um, two primary roles of the session, and then we're going to come back to that, and Lee's going to talk about that a good bit uh, as we, he gets into the role of elder. The spiritual health of the congregation and the congregation's faithfulness to God's mission. That's what we do. That's what the session does. Uh, and we'll go back and read a little bit more of that um, under my Roman numeral five. Uh, Lee's going to cover the elder are you going to get into the, the Old Testament background and all that? A little bit, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I think I put in here the, the passage out of Numbers and out of 1 Timothy. Uh, so if Lee doesn't do it, or if I do it, maybe he doesn't need to do it. But this goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Um, numbers eleven sixteen through 18. And it was actually Moses' father-in-law who was not a Hebrew. They guided him on the 70 elders because he was getting worn out. You can imagine he was bringing 2 million plus people out and it was all by himself. And then his father-in-law Jethro or Raoul, um, depending upon the interpretation, said, you're going to kill yourself. You've got to have some help. So get godly men and, it, and it's all right in here. You can read it. And then there's a couple of very, very clear scriptural mandates for the office of elder. Uh, Titus chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3. I think, yeah, I won't, I won't go through those, but they're reprinted in here for you. And that's very, very important. Being an officer in the church isn't a popularity contest. It is a matter of spiritual maturity and calling. And that's what I think has happened in so many of our churches. It's become a popularity contest or somebody that's an important person in the community. That isn't it at all. Go back and, and, and Lee will get into those with you. That's the criteria uh, that we need to, it, this is the biblical standard for, for elders. And so many churches have gone astray uh, by not adhering to that. And then if you go down to number four under that, the summary of, old, of the role of elders, maybe I should have gone here first. Teach, lead, model, pray. In a nutshell, that's what we're supposed to do. And hopefully we are. Greenville Prez, um, we have four councils or courts, um, the session, the diaconate, the board of directors, and the foundation. I think I've already pretty well touched on the session, and its purpose is actually in this polity book. If you want to read more, I got all these notes that I came, came straight out of that, because this polity book at the time I put this together was very foreign to me because it was brand new. I came out of the PCA and then the PCUSA before that. And it's very, very different. And it's very concise. 
it's really a lot more direct than any of the than some of these other denominations, which I really like. It just gets to the point. It just gives us the gist of what we're supposed to be doing. But every congregation is governed by the session, and the moderator is typically the pastor. The responsibilities of the elders, basically two things, to govern and to guide. So you can kind of boil it down to that. And Lee's going to get into all that. Um, there are five marks of the, uh, you know, the, the, that they go by, the marks of the true church. And this is something that, and I don't remember if it's in the polity book or not, but it, it struck me when I was ordained an elder in the PCA. Um, there's three things, and I put it here. There's three things that will mark a true church. Uh, the first is the proclamation of the word, preaching of the Bible. The second is the proper administration of sacraments. And we have two, baptism and uh, communion. And the third one may shock you. And that's what we're gonna I'm going to finish up with in just a few minutes. The, exor the proper exercise of church discipline. That's what the three marks of the church are. And a church may do too, but if they do not exercise the third, then it's not a true church, according to Scripture. Say the third one, yeah. The, exercise, the proper exercise of church discipline. And that's a whole topic we're going to get to in just a few minutes. So the elders that oversee the spiritual life, the spiritual growth, the administrative operation, and bear witness against error and doctrine and practice. So... Elders have a pretty big job, and this is a big congregation. We have 36 elders. In fact, if you want to see the pictures, you can go to page 91 in your book. Um, I don't know where they got my picture, probably 15 years ago, but uh, I look be better than I do now, so um, I guess that's not all bad. <clears throat> Let's go to the diaconate. Um, it comes from the Greek word diaconus, which means to be a servant or to serve. Um, Many of the traits are similar between a deacon and an elder. And, and again, you can go back into right after the 1 Timothy 3 passage relating to elders, uh, Paul goes into the criteria for deacons. And you'll notice the list is very similar. And in both cases, there needs to be a sense of call. But the, the traits and the jobs of the two are different. And deacons are a lot more along the lines of service. And, and caring for the congregation in terms of sickness and in other things. Um, and I think you're going, you're going to get into all that as well. So the pictures of all the deacons are on page 93. Um, and the, these, everything that we're doing in this church and in this polity is strictly coming straight out of the Bible. It, we believe it's the way we're supposed to be doing it. The third area is the board of directors. Its purpose is the care and custody and control of real property, generally speaking. Um, and if you look, it has three responsibilities. Transfer or sale of real estate, risk management, which can be safety, insurance, security, uh, financial oversight of capital projects. In other words, they're kind of like a, a second set of eyes looking over the finances of the church. And the board members are on page 95. FPC Foundation um, is, is the fourth one, and its purpose is really to hold property uh, and, and, and hold funding to create, expand, and sustain Christian ministries here. Um, 
and you can see its responsibilities, and the people that are on the foundation are on page 96. Um, I'm going to skip over this last, the majority of this last section, except go to, um, I think everybody, y'all being Presbyterians, you know we baptized infants. That's always can be kind of a, a need some explanation to folks that don't come from um, infant baptism background, but since y'all do, um, it, we talk about the way you join the church, profession of faith in, in Christ as your Lord and Savior, a reaffirmation of your faith, or a transfer of membership is how you come to, into this church. And then every, there's a membership expectation for every member coming in. Claire does an incredible job with this new members class. I mean, if I could tell you when we joined 20 years ago, it was about a one hour. I don't know about you, Lee, but for me, it was, it was like a one hour thing. Do you believe Christ is your Lord and Savior? And I said, yes, we are in. I mean, there was very little, but what she's done is just incredible. And the, and the new folks we're getting in are just all fired up and they know what's going on. Um, and then look at that E section. And, and again, this should not be uh, unusual for you. Um, electing elders, this is the, what the congregational meetings are about. Electing elders and trustees as well as deacons. The calling of pastor or head of staff. And that's after the, uh, the search committee has done their work. They affirm it. Buying, mortgaging, transfer of property. Dismiss a congregation. Uh, requesting the, the presbytery dismiss a congregation um, to another presbytery or to another reform body. So that, in a nutshell, is the polity. And uh, does anybody have any questions? I'm just curious about the transfer letter. Is that only within the EC? No, if you look in the back, it, you can, it can be transferred to another church. In other words, we can... We can do that. We can requesting the. We have to do it through the presbytery, but we request the presbytery to dismiss, dismiss another congregation. Are you talking about a congregation or a person? I, I, I'll just use myself. I left PCUSA Church to come uh -huh. here. Is there a transfer letter to that, or you just join? Sometimes some churches do transfers of letter. Some do not. Practically, so, ideally, they would do the transfer of letter. We do it. Correct. So we will do it to, if, we, if somebody was leaving this church to go to a PCUSA church, we would offer to transfer the letter. But it's, when you go in between denominations, it's not rigidly adhered to. Uh, so you're still going, have you, have you joined? Yeah. Okay. I, mean, I never transferred a letter and I was just curious whether I should or not. It doesn't matter, you know, because we, we get it on some people and we would like to do it because it keeps the roles clean of both churches but it's not essential. Okay. So by the time you get the congregational meeting for either uh, the uh, elders and the deacons or calling a pastor, that's just a formality, so to speak? It's not a formality because it has to be ratified, but we've changed the process. Are you gonna get into the process? Okay, so let me, let me defer that question. It's a great question, uh, but, but Lee's group, you know, he's heading up the Leadership and Governance Committee which has basically revamped the way we've done things around here and we b believe made it much more biblical. And so if you're gonna get into that, let's, let's hold that question. Uh, anything else before we get into uh, to discipline? Which, um, 
isn't any, everybody's favorite, but it is essential. And hopefully you will see how essential it is. Um, so if you go to page 73, you will find the church discipline handout. Um, and with what Lee copied and has put before you, if you look, I think it's toward the rear, there's, it's only a couple of pages on church discipline in the back of that uh, stack that, that Lee just handed out. Um, and let me tell you, the, the ECO takes it seriously, as do a number of other denominations. Um, let me just kind of give you a little bit of background on it, because this is a touchy subject for a lot of churches. It's very difficult. And so historically, church discipline has always been part of the church life. And you know why? Because it's in the Bible. The Bible says you've got to do this. Matthew 18. It, you can't read Matthew 18 and get around it. It is unequivocal, and that's not the only passage. Uh, the pro, and as I mentioned earlier, the Protestant reformers listed church discipline as one of the three marks of the church. Remember, I just covered that. The preaching of the word, the proper administration of the sacraments, and the proper exercise of church discipline. Those are the three marks. If one's missing, you don't have a church, according to the reformers. Um, today, biblical correction, admonition, rebuke, excommunication is all but extinct. Um, church discipline is feared. Uh, of you know people that talk about well you know that just reminds me of the Salem witch trials and things like that that you know the scarlet letter going around with an A on your chest or something like that you know there's just all these um, these connotations to church discipline but the the people that look at it that way they don't know what the Bible says about it the Bible makes it very very clear that it's an integral part of the church. Um, does, and then if you look at my number two, doesn't the uh, church discipline contradict the command not to judge one another? I mean, I hear that. I've heard that a number of times. Um, you know, we've been told, judge not lest ye be judged, Matthew 7, 1, right? Well, what about uh, John seven twenty four, but he also said, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Same Christ said both of those things. Uh, Paul queries in, in Corinthians. He, said, he asked the Corinthians, do you not, and this is 1 Corinthians 5, 12, and 13, do you not judge, this is the Apostle Paul talking, do you not judge those who are within your church, but those who are outside God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. That is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth saying, deal with the sinners in your midst. There was no, there was no ambiguity about church discipline in the New Testament. It was to be done properly. It was be, to be done with grace and with right motive. Uh, the, in fact, number three, the church that doesn't church discipline contradict the love, uh, contradict the command to love one another. Absolutely not. You can call it tough love if you want. You can, call it spank, you can call it spanking a child. But discipline is not. You read through the scriptures. I've been reading through Proverbs this week. And it's the father talks about disciplining the, the son because he loves him. 
And so absolutely not. It's not designed to be humiliating or punitive or anything else. It's designed for restoration. Um, so what is it? Look at the passage from Hebrews. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For, by, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And I won't read the whole thing. You can read it yourself. That's straight out of the New Testament. Um, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is one of our uh, tenets, one of our standards, uh, has a whole chapter. Chapter 30 is all about church discipline. Um, in fact, I love the way they put it at the beginning of chapter 3. Church, uh, uh, paragraph 3 of chapter 30. Church discipline is necessary for the proclaiming and gaining uh, fellow Christians who are guilty of offenses and for deterring others. So that's the whole purpose. The purposes of church discipline we're going to talk about, and I've listed them there for you. To glorify God and to vindicate, to vindicate the integrity and honor of Christ. To maintain the peace and purity of the church. And if you want to jot these down, I, let's see. They may already be in there. The verses? Oh, yeah, so they put my verses. Okay. Matthew 4, uh, 548. To restore and edify the offender. That's the primary purpose. Win your brother back. Restore the sinner. Win your brother back comes out of Matthew 18. Restore the sinner comes out of Galatians 6. Uh, lead to repentance is 2 Timothy. You see, it is everywhere in the Bible that we are to, we need to have oversight over the discipline of our members. To deter, to deter others from sin, that's 1 Timothy 5.20, and to avoid God's intervention. Um, pretty good reasons, pretty good purposes. The precepts, there's two, two aspects to it. There's a formative aspect, which is to avoid or prevent. If you want to write avoid or repent, I mean, to, av to avoid or prevent after formative, that may be easier to understand. And the second is, to, is corrective, is to correct behavior. Um, and I've listed the formative. Um, this is how to avoid having issues of discipline arise. It's preventative rather than restorative. Um, preaching, teaching, modeling, mentoring, receiving. And then you go down to the C part, which is corrective. Okay, you've done your formative, you've tried to avoid it, but you haven't. Now you've got an issue. What do you do? You go to line C, correction. Um, there's several types, warning, correction. And I put a little chart, which I think, um, it's on the, let's see if it's in here. Yeah, there it is. It's on page 77. And I won't go through all this for the sake of time. But this is largely based on Matthew 18. And if you remember the passages in Matthew 18, it's to go, go to your brother and confront him yourself. Take one or two witnesses with you. And then it escalates. And that's exactly what that chart shows. The entire purpose is restoration. It's not condemnation. It is restoration. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit with this.